Listener supported. WNYC Studios. by my great friend Lelahua Lanzalotti. It just sort of hypnotizes you, and uh, what Ko'uinoa means in Native Hawaiian is my name is. My name is Andrew Yi. My pronouns are she and they, for now. I'm a cellist. I play cello in a string quartet called the Ataka Quartet, but I also play on my own. I'm also a composer. I'm a parent. is an audio memoir by cellist and composer Andrew Yee. They've been exploring their identity through a recital series called Haffy, and this memoir draws from their Haffy recital in the green space, as well as music and conversations with people important to them. I'm John Schaefer, and this is the Artist Propulsion Lab. My dad's side of the family, which is my Chinese side, came over to the United States during the Cultural Revolution in China. Because of the Cultural Revolution and who they were, they had to get papers of another family. So my original family name was Chin, but my grandparents got papers with the last name Yi. My grandfather came over first. I called him Yaya and opened a small laundry in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He earned enough money to get my grandmother and my father, who was a small child, over to the United States. They had tickets to fly to Boston to meet my grandfather, but my Grandmother had had uh, never been on an international flight before, and was somewhat intimidated. I'm Harry Yi. I'm Andrew's dad. There was a lot of confusion about where we were supposed to be, and my mother, of, of course, did not speak any English. So she glommed on to uh, a university student who was at the airport on that flight and went wherever the university student went. That happened to be New York. We were not supposed to fly to New York. When they arrived, they were shuttled off to Ellis Island. They really didn't have very many ways to tell my grandfather where they were. So they ended up staying on Ellis Island for for a few weeks before my grandfather was able to come down and take them back up to Boston. I still have dim memories of Ellis Island. 
when we were in the dining hall, I remember, or my my mother told me, she used to pass me around to the other Chinese ladies who would carry me up and get milk, because that's the only way you would get milk is if you had a baby. I don't understand why the idiots in the serving line didn't uh, notice that it was the same Chinese kid being passed around seven times for milk. Yeah, yeah, finally found us, got us out of Ellis Island, and uh, we ended up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. If you didn't work in the restaurant, then you worked in a laundry. There weren't any good choices. Today, laundries or laundromats or dry cleaners are ordinary sterile places. That's not what your typical Chinese laundry looked like. My parents had a small one and then uh, moved into a larger space. They had steam presses in order to press the clothes. In the winter, the steam heat would heat the building, but in the summer, it was intolerable. If it was 90 degrees outside and the steam presses were working, it would easily be 110 or 120 degrees inside. You can't air condition a room with a steam press in it. So we had to leave the fans on and the doors open. That didn't help much at all. There was no upward mobility. It was a different time and a different place. When I think back about it now, it's painful. But I didn't know any better at the time. That was my life. Uh, we didn't have much, and they worked hard all the time. The only time that they took off would be on a Sunday morning to go into Chinatown uh, to buy groceries and, and perhaps to go to a Chinese restaurant. My grandparents also brought over other members of the family from China. One of them opened a dim sum restaurant and ran dim sum restaurants in Boston Chinatown for a while. He ran the China Pearl and Hey La Moon and all of these places that any person who's eaten dim sum in, in Boston will, will know and, and smile about. My father has a, a complicated relationship with the Chinese language. He did speak with his parents in Chinese for the rest of their lives. Sometimes would mix in a little bit of English, but I remember my whole childhood having him basically as a translator. They did speak English. My grandmother spoke a little bit more than my grandfather. She was very outgoing and gregarious, and, and my grandfather was the sort of contemplative one. I maintained my Chinese for a while, and uh, but that has now almost virtually disappeared. Not only did he stop using it on a regular basis, but his dialect is basically extinct now. One called Toisan, which was enveloped by Cantonese. So there's not, there aren't very many people in the world who speak it anymore. What was the experience of being Chinese for you in Boston during that time? It was a, a different time. There were different norms. It was extraordinarily, well, it was impossible for uh, people to immigrate. Uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, I, I lived in a uh, kind of rough-and-tumble neighborhood, you know, uh, and I got along with the people I went to school with, you know, primarily. There, there was discrimination. It was more overt then than it is now. You just sort of lived with it. Some of my friends were, uh, were black, and others were Filipino, and others were Chinese, and uh, all of us experienced the world and discrimination in, in kind of different ways and made the best of it, and that's how we lived our life. Which is not to say that I had a bad childhood. I, I had a pretty good childhood, I think. You know, I came here not being able to speak English, and, uh, you know, I learned English very quickly. So when I would visit my grandparents' house in Cambridge, it was this multi-story sort of townhouse, light blue, and outside were these bushes that were thick with mint plants. 
So the house had a very specific smell that to this day, every time I smell mint, I it, it puts me on, on that porch. The smell of mint and old wood. My grandfather was a self-taught violinist and he was very passionate, but he was also very shy knowing that he hadn't been trained. His shelves were were lined with recordings of, of Itzhak Perlman and Isaac Stern and on all the great old violinists and he knew what they were and what he was. He had a collection of, uh, I guess there were 78s in those days. I mean, all, all of the masters of the violin. So uh, yeah, yeah, at, at his heart, in his heart was uh, a music appreciator in the best sense of the word. He was passionate enough so that he really wanted to try to make music to varying degrees of uh, success, but uh, I'm sure it made sense to him and that uh, uh, he enjoyed it because he continued for as, uh, as long as I can recall. My memory of sounds that I heard that Yeah Yeah was, was making was, was more sort of like soundscapes on the, the violin. Did he play songs? Is, is that what do, you, what do you recall? That's a very kind way of putting it, Andrew. Uh, soundscapes is <laughs> is uh, is a much kinder way of describing it than I would have described it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, while he was dedicated to his violin craft, was never actually any good at it, and that's not to denigrate Yeah Yeah's violin playing. I mean, it was he derived great enjoyment from it, even if others did not. He never played the violin in the house. He would always take it to a crawl space underneath the house. It was just dirt and there were wooden beams and a small lamp and he would go for hours. The one time that I did see him play the violin there was when I was mowing his backyard and and going past the the crawl space when he was in there playing and when I imagined him playing is it's that moment in time. I've been working a lot with the composer Caroline Shaw, who's one of my very best friends. And I just find myself always coming back to her music, and I'm not really sure what it is about her music, but there's just something that invites you in, and it just sort of changes you on the way out. And I was thinking about a solo cello piece she wrote called In Manus To Us. It's about the experience of being in a choir and hearing the sound of the choir bounce around in the rafters of the cathedral. I was thinking about my yeah-yeah in the crawl space underneath the house and thinking of the beams holding up the house and how beauty is not dictated by place or circumstance. Music is just music. he died I was able to take my cello up to Cambridge and I remember playing for him a couple times and just seeing the look on his face when he saw that you know his grandkid had had really really learned the craft it's a cool thing now to look back on and, and understand how important that moment must have been for him as a musician to to see someone who would who had really done it and i think about him a lot
My father played a handful of brass instruments growing up and eventually landed with the baritone. And he met my mother in the marching band at Northeastern in Boston. My, my mother also played the baritone. And one of the, the flirtatious moments that, that uh, they had, the first ones where my mom had forgotten her mouthpiece and my dad offered her his. And <laughs> I love that. And I also love that that's how they met because my mother is profoundly hard of hearing and she must have just really, really loved doing it. They fell in love. And I think about how radical that must have seemed at the time for a Chinese man and, and a white woman to walk down the street together and, and, and be not only together, but happy. It makes me very happy to think of, to think of them as trailblazers in that way. So after my father graduated from Northeastern, he, um, he joined the Air Force. And after basic training, this sort of question came up, who was going to go down the path of learning how to fly planes and who was not. And he decided not to and uh, decided instead to have the Air Force pay for his law school. And he was going to become an attorney in the Air Force. And so my family was an Air Force family. The first place my family was stationed was in Pennsylvania. And then they moved to Florida, where my oldest brother, David, was born. Then to Boston, where Ken, my other brother, was born. Then to Rome, New York. Then to Ohio, where I was born. Then on to Virginia for a short stint. Then to Oklahoma City. And then to Germany. And then back to Virginia, where my dad retired from the Air Force and uh, worked at the Library of Congress, and that's where I began to play the cello. I started playing cello in fourth grade in the public school system. The teacher paused the class, and the strings teacher popped in with an armful of instruments and introduced them to the class. She was a classically trained violinist and she was not a good cellist. And the one thing that she could play, however, was the theme from Jaws, the bottom bum 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 bum. And I remember just thinking that is the absolute coolest thing I've ever heard. And she, <laughs> She was like, who wants to play the cello? And I just raised my hand so hard. And I got the form and I brought it home. And I was like, I really, really, really want to play the cello. And it's so cool. You can play Jaws on it. My brother, Ken, at the time, played the guitar. And uh, he taught me a Smashing pumpkin song, uh, Disarm. That, so that was, the, that was the second piece I learned on the cello. The thing about, about being in Northern Virginia is that Rostropovich used to conduct the National Symphony. So it's a big cello town. It also just made it really fun because there was just a whole, there was a whole lot of good cello playing. And the whole time I was growing up, I was really obsessed with, oh man, like why, why can that person play the cello like that? But I can't, you know? And I would spend all day trying to summon their powers. <laughs> until I had done it. I didn't know when I was a kid, you know, what I had, and um, it was just really fun. And I always just loved playing the cello for that reason. I think the turning point for me was when my 
elementary school cello teacher, Mary Wagner, said, all right, after, after this year, I can't, I can't teach you anymore. And originally I thought it was because I was a bratty kid <laughs> and she didn't want to deal with me anymore. But uh, she said, no, I think you should go study with the man that, that I studied with. Uh, his name was Lauren D. Stevenson, and he was a he was a cellist in the National Symphony. She set it. She set up a time when I could go play for him. He was a hard teacher. I always felt like um, I was being stacked up against uh, all these other people. Uh, but I got better so quickly studying with him. And his standards were so high. Um, and that's when I realized that I had something that I was good at. And at the time, I was a little bit struggling because I had just been diagnosed with ADHD. And and I was having a hard time sort of, uh, sort of staying on task with a lot of things. But cello was always something that I felt like I could put my mind to it and I could accomplish it. And, and when I did it, people seemed to like it. I had a bit of class clown energy when I was younger. And I think that it's really not dissimilar deciding to go into music, that you want everybody in the room to just look at you and give you praise for something you just did. You know, and I'm only realizing that now. But <laughs> I think in in the early parts of the pandemic, I came to terms with the fact that that I wasn't going to walk into a room with hundreds of people clapping for me uh, anytime soon. And I think I learned a lot about myself in that moment. I first knew that I felt different when I was around eight, I think. It's tough to know because how well does anyone know themselves when they're that young? There's all sorts of things happening in your head, but you know, this feeling of every time we played X-Men, I, I wanted to be rogue, you know, and uh, every Halloween, which is um, trans kids Christmas, I would, <laughs> I would always be some sort of girl figure or, or a, a character because that was the day that you got to be invisible and visible at the same time. I remember my family was late to getting internet. I didn't have internet until my teens. And basically doing, you know, this is before Google, like an Ask Jeeves <laughs> search of uh, what am I, you know? What's what's the deal? Like, why why do I feel different? The only media that you could find was very sensational. Mostly the place where you could find trans people was on Jerry Springer. And as it was told to all of us as trans kids and trans folk was the whole purpose of being trans was to fool straight men into sleeping with us. I remember thinking, but like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> like, so I must not be trans, you know, and uh, further cementing this idea that trans people were, were objects and they were freaks. And um, so it was far too scary to put words to it back then. I, I think about it a lot about how different my life would have been if I had been able to talk about it. But that was around the time I was diagnosed with ADHD, and I already felt like I was kind of a weird kid to begin with. And I didn't really want people to think I was weirder than than they already thought I was. When I picked up the music for Andrew Norman's For Ashley, 
I almost put it, I put it back immediately without even looking at the music, because um, it was sort of embedded in the title. Uh, this sense of the piece is for this other person uh, and not you, and. That is not, absolutely not what Andrew meant <laughs> when he was naming the piece. It was, um, it was either extreme flattery or, or uh, maybe a little bit of, I don't feel like coming up with a name for this piece. Then I, I looked at the piece and I realized that, that I thought it would be great. Uh, I thought I would sound okay on it. I thought I would, I would have a good time playing it. And it did, it did remind me of um, when I first decided to start um, not using the men's room and feeling like the sign on the wall said, this is for people who are not you. I remember running in and and peeing and running out, not even washing my hands, just from fear of uh, somebody being mean to me or or saying something. And but you know, after a few more times of of walking into the men's room and just having my my heart sink, I just decided that life was too short, and uh, I needed to start just making choices that were that were good for me. Going back to Andrew Norman's piece, and I'm si- I'm sitting there and I'm holding this music and I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna play this piece because I think it's great. project deals a little bit with this feeling of imposter syndrome where you know you don't have to be mixed race or trans or or non-binary or or any of those things to understand imposter syndrome and that feeling of saying even though I'm uncomfortable I can belong It is many trans persons' hope and goal to just be treated as a normal human being. And I didn't think that, that was going to be the case if I if I came out. And I came out when I was 32 to my close friends. And I just turned 38 last week. <laughs> I have just let it sort of unfurl organically and uh, people have picked up along the way and it you know it wouldn't take too much digging to, to find out or you could just you know look at me it always boggles my mind when I I walk into a place and I'm you know I have full makeup and wearing like a dress and somebody hello sir <laughs> can I get what what sandwich can I get for you sir I mean, I, I I guess I get it on the phone. I wish the whole sir and miss, uh, as part of being polite, would disappear into the into the past. That would be nice. <laughs> I'm not sure if my feeling about how I identify has evolved, or how my comfort level has changed over time, and I'm able to really talk about you know who i am as a as a human being and and who i've always been on notes from america we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be each week we talk about race 
are politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts. Anytime you talk to a group of, of queer folk and they're like, oh, let's go to the beach, it's sort of understood that, that you're going to Reese, Jacob Reese. It's a long and sprawling beach. And then the part right at the end in front of a crumbling old hospital <laughs> is uh, where all the queer people go. And it is a place that is sort of sheltered from from sight from the rest of the beach. Maybe the reason that Jacob Reese has been so important to me is the beach is, in most places, an incredibly gendered place. You have, you know, women in, in bikinis and... And uh, and the guys wear you know shorts and that's that's sort of that and and if you sort of stray from that you get looks and I think that Jacob Reese uh, allowed me to to try out some new styles in a place where I felt all right about it and when I left I could throw on some shorts and a shirt I wrote a piece called The Sea as It Is which the piece itself is about the ocean and about how the ocean can be a place of extreme happiness or sadness and it doesn't really it doesn't really sort of care and then i tell a story of how the the beach was the place i had my first date with my fiance and how we keep on coming back to the beach and how that's such a joyful place I met the love of my life three years ago. Our first date was at Reese Beach. And if you haven't been, there's a well-kept side. And there's a side in front of an old abandoned hospital, which is where all the queer folk are. And that's where we went. We met on Tinder. And when our plans to go to the beach with our friends both fell through, we decided that we were going to make that our first date. And we've met in front of the library on Cortelli Road, and we remote rode the bus there together. And it was the first in-person conversation we had had. And at one point, our legs touched. laughed the entire time and our first kiss was one of those kisses that makes you the hair on the back of your neck stand up and we tossed in the waves taking turns holding each other up last year we went back to Reese to propose to each other and last month we took our eight month old for the first time That's why I think we keep finding ourselves at the sea. 
because it's where we come from. And every time we leave the beach, we know we're going to find ourselves tumbling back onto the sand like the tide. Our featured artists this evening, Andrew Yee, with their piece, The Sea As It Is. So the piece that we're going to hear is called American Haiku by the composer Paul Wianco. How does this fit in to Haffy? Oh, this piece is about Haffy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having multiple identities uh, and and making, making beautiful things out of it. Um, I, I don't see how I could... Uh, have a have a halfie that didn't have this on it. My name is Paul Wianco, and I'm a composer and cellist. American Haiku, it's a piece that I wrote when I was kind of figuring out my voice as a composer. It was one of my first concert works. I didn't start writing performance music in earnest until about 10 years ago. So this piece was a bit of an experiment. All of my musical inspirations and fandoms kind of came through in that piece. So it's a bit of a hodgepodge of jazz and bluegrass and Americana. When I usually describe it to audiences, I say that it's an identity crisis wrapped in music. I've, I've told that to a lot of people thinking that maybe someday that crisis will be resolved (laughs) somehow. um, That crisis definitely hasn't worked itself out the way I thought it would. It has brought some things into question, and in a way, the style that American Haiku was written in is just my style, and I'm realizing that 
the older I get and the more music I write and to embrace the crisis of it all. So you mentioned a lot of like different musical styles and even though it has haiku in the name, how much of the piece was sort of inspired by by Japan or by Asia? Not that much. Not as much as people think. At least ideas from my conscious brain. Growing up, I listened to a lot of Japanese folk music in my living room, played live by my mom, who played koto and was in a koto ensemble. And so that tonality is just kind of, it's in my mind, it's in my ear, and I carry it with me. And I think it comes out in in subtle ways. And that's, I think, the role that that part of my identity plays in this piece is a very kind of subconscious influence. There's nothing like, this is the Japanese part, you know, it's just the whole thing is kind of inspired by the succinctness of haiku and the beautiful simplicity. And although the piece isn't necessarily simple structurally, I think the melodic things and the emotion of it is um, kind of direct. And I don't know, I'm curious your take on it because it, it sort of took, took me a while to sort of figure out that I wasn't in touch with my Asian heritage until I was well into adulthood. I had always, you know, known, you know, I tell people, you know, I'm half Chinese and, but like, I, I sort of didn't realize that about myself that I, that I hadn't uh, been actively engaging with it. Did you, did you sort of have that feeling like as a kid too? Or, or how, how does that sort of resonate with you? Absolutely. As a half Japanese person, I had very, a very similar experience in terms of the timeline of when I wanted to figure that stuff out. <laughs> it happened much later than you might think. And I'm, part of it is just the environment that we're raised in the household and our communities growing up and you know it kind of occurred to me that throughout my upbringing when i would tell someone oh i'm half japanese 95 percent of the time the first response is like what's the other half you know (laughs) it's not like oh tell me about that experience (laughs) 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 which is you know that's a natural of course you want to know yeah i i still haven't i still haven't been to china i feel like i have this block that I have a feeling I'm going to go to China and then I'm going to be so embarrassed that I'm not Chinese enough that I'm just going to go home. <laughs> I'm going to get there and I'm going to like have a bowl of soup <laughs> and then I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave a week early. I mean, that could be a powerfully important experience too, you know, if that's yeah. the way it goes. Yeah. and cries from the other room. Uh, yeah, that's Otis. <laughs> that's the life. He's up from his nap. Yeah. Oh. Focus him. <laughs> oh no, I'm just. It'll. It'll. There's the sound of Odie crying. Will will show up. I'm just giving him a second to. Uh, I'm giving him a second <laughs> to sort of calm down. He normally just is confused oh, when he you. wakes up, and then. I thought you were just missing Otis. Oh, I do. I miss, I miss him so much. I miss him a lot. All right, sounds like he's he's good. Another thing that I used to Google constantly was questions about hormone therapy. There were always two red flags that popped up for me. One was the possible loss of libido. 
and one was potential slash likely sterilization. And in my 20s, I, I wasn't I I wasn't looking to have kids with anyone, you know. But I wasn't, first of all, ready to come out of the closet, let alone start taking hormones. And I wasn't ready to close the door on being able to to have a kid. And it wasn't until I met my most recent partner, Des, that that I thought, well, you know what? I think that this person, I think I want to have a kid with. She felt the same way. We talked about it. I had been out for some time and, and I was still thinking about it, but I decided not to start. And then uh, Des got pregnant. We were trying and it sort of re-sparked a conversation that I had been having with Des for a while about thinking about hormones. And, you know, I was like, I don't, I don't really know. I don't, I'm not entirely sure and basically made the decision to go to the doctor and and just sort of talk about it and say like, hey, this is something I've been thinking about. Like, what do you think? And my doctor was like, hey, well, you know, if you're sort of on the fence about it, you have me now. Why don't I just give you a prescription? And uh, if you want to start taking it, you can. And if not, it, you can just let it lapse. I got patches that you they put on your skin that have estrogen, and I have pills that block testosterone, as well as doing other things. You know, like uh, keeping uh, my hair looking nice and intact. So I had them in the cabinet, and Tez was in her final two weeks of pregnancy. And I remember just saying to Des, like, you know, I think I think it is what I want. And Des wasn't getting any less pregnant <laughs> at that point. I went to, you know, the bathroom and I, I put the patch on and I, I took a pill and it ended up being, yeah, about two weeks before my son Otis was born. I think two things that it's cool that we both have this marker around the same time. And I'm really glad that Otis will know that I waited until he showed up and then began this thing that was really important to me. I think that's really cool that he's going to to know that and know that I did that. I'm really happy I waited because he's a really cool kid. Oh my God, he's the cutest baby. We talked, I talked to Des at length about what our names were going to be. She said I, I could have whatever I wanted. And, and we decided that, um, you know, we're, we're both going to be his moms. He has two moms, but Des is going to be his mommy, and I am Ama. That's A-M-A. Then, you know, as he grows up, he'll sort of figure out what, what works for him. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. Oklahoma, the musical, I was obsessed with when I was um, three, four years old. Like, that was my uh, Frozen. <laughs> Yeah, I had a VHS of it, and I played it all day long. And, um... Oh, what a beautiful morning. That was my jam. Oh, what a beautiful day. I got a beautiful feeling. Everything's going my way. It was a song that I knew really well, which I think is, I'm learning, is really important when you're trying to calm down a kid is that if you know the song really well, you can be doing other things while you're singing that song. I played the cello for him the other day. He heard it happen and he looked startled and looked up and he, he looked at the cello 
We looked at my hand. They looked up at my face. He <laughs> was like, what? You? You could do this the whole time? <laughs> you, and you're singing my songs? It was really cool to see that realization. He changes so much every day, and it sort of stops him in his tracks. You know, if he's having a hard time, I hold him up against my chest, and I sing to him, and he can sort of feel uh, my voice through my body. It, it calms him down immediately. All the cattle are standing like statues. I really love singing to him. All the cattle are standing like statues. They don't turn their heads as they see me ride by. But a little brown maverick is winking her eye. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I got a beautiful feeling. Everything's going my way. This episode was produced by Andrew Yee and Max Fine. Matt Frassica is our editor. Additional production assistance by Jay Jiang, Hanako Yamaguchi, and Laura Boyman. All music performed by Andrew Yee. American Haiku also features violist Ayane Kozasa. Special thanks to Leila Hua Lanzalotti, Caroline Shaw, Paul Wianco, and Concord Music. I'm John Schaefer. Thanks for listening. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I got a beautiful feeling. Everything's going my way. Oh, what a beautiful day. I think this is the one.